Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is episode number 285, and with that number, we'll give a shout out to Heather O'Reilly. She played just 285 minutes for the US Women's National Team in 2004 and scored just one goal, but it was such an important goal. It was the game winner in extra time in the Olympic semifinal match against Germany. She helped the USA defeat Germany 2-1 and advance to the 2004 gold medal match. And we've got two chats today. Uh, Both of them I think you'll like a lot. Uh, First, spoke with Ella Masser, former NWSL player, also played in the Bundesliga and in Sweden. Uh, She retired at the end of the 2018-19 Bundesliga season. And she has since started her own business to help other players retiring from soccer. So had a great chat talking with Ella Masser all the way from Madrid. And then a long, long, long chat with my friend Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer. Uh, basically, Dan and I reviewed four key women's soccer games that you should definitely watch. Um, we chose four Four games from a kind of across the spectrum, but all four of these are available in their entirety on YouTube. Uh, so you can watch them with these comments. Um, we spoke first about the 2003 WSA championship game, then the 2011 USA versus Brazil quarterfinal from the Women's World Cup, and FIFA TV will be broadcasting that game Monday night. And then that means it'll sit up on the on the FIFA channel for a while. And then we talked about the 2014 August NWSL regular season game between Washington Spirit and Chicago Red Stars, which ended up being a game that decided the fate for both of those teams in terms of playoffs. And then what we both considered the best NWSL game of all time, the 2016 semifinal Western New York flash at Portland Thorn. So I hope you enjoy listening to us talk about those games. And I really hope you will check out all of those games. I'll put links for all of them on keepernotes.com. So you don't have to dig through YouTube to find them. And of course, in between the two chats is my recurring segment called Jensplaining. And this weekend I explain the golden goal, which is separate or rather, which is not what Heather O'Reilly scored in the 2004 Olympics. Hers was just an extra time goal. Uh, in Jen's planning, I talk about what a golden goal is. All right. Hope you enjoy these chats and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at keeper notes and also mix zone. And that's two X X's in mix zone. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with one of our NWSL originals, Ella Masser, all the way from Madrid. Ella, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I think I I'm hoping that I'm at the end of my quarantine where you guys seem like you're just in the middle and it's not as hot yet. But I think this (laughs) summer, I think Houston has prepped me for the gosh, I can't even think Fahrenheit anymore for the 35, 40 degree weather here. That's awesome that, you, that you're already thinking Celsius, that you've been in Europe a long, long enough that you're thinking Celsius. And and how is your Spanish? Yeah, I'm actually, um, for the last four months, I've been in an intensive course, so 25 to 30 hours a week. 
Wow. Because it's, yeah, it's necessary to speak, to, to work here. Um, so now I'm B2, which is actually uh, better than my German, but I'm, it's also, we also have a little bit of luck in the States. You know, you take it in high school. I lived in Mexico when I was younger, um, but I guess you'd have to, I'd have to talk to Bianca and then maybe she would tell you, okay, Ella's good or maybe she's not so good. <laughs> but then also, aren't there going to be like maybe different accents within Spain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not so like Catalonia, you know, like the Barça, where it's the, it's a very different dialect. Uh-huh. Here, Madristas, I say, speak very fast. Um which I can attest to that. Um, but I just, <laughs> my accent is so screwed. I mean, I, when I talked to my family, they said, okay, you have a little bit of Canadian. Sometimes you go into like a more German-ish accent. So my accent, it doesn't matter what I speak. They just kind of look at me and they go, ah, okay. Where you're are just, you from? Yeah, you're just a citizen of the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, before, before we talk about what you've been doing lately, I want to jump back um, since we had some coverage of the Dash inaugural game earlier this week. Just some, some thoughts of that, that first preseason and that first game. Yeah, I think it was such a... I mean, coming from Chicago, which, you know, is definitely an up and coming, but not nearly as, I guess, um, we weren't with the men's team. So for me, that's probably one of the coolest things I remember is just being in that stadium um, and having the support that we did from the club. I still think when I look back, the things that we got from Houston Dash is probably some of the best I received overall from um, just stadium training, you know, we had CSS just from facilities alone. I think it was just such a, a cool real, like, Oh, I'm a professional footballer. If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be a big feeling. I mean, I remember the, the dash day we did at the stadium where they flew like 10 of you in for that weekend and hearing from some of the players saying, Oh my God, somebody picked me up at the airport. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a staffer to pick me up from the airport, you know. And then that yeah, game so many- against Portland, you know, um, playing the defending champs. Of course, I mean, their their roster was pretty different. But watching that game again this weekend, I was like, the Dash weren't it the whole time. Yeah, I think that was also the frustrating part of the Dash is that we always felt like we were there and that we would for sure make playoffs throughout that season because we felt like we were we could compete with the best. Mm-hmm. However, it was always for, you know, it's always a game. It's football. It's we want to say a game of inches like American football. But for us, we just felt like we never could quite get over just that one extra step that would have easily put us into the the I guess the playoff situation. Well, and I remember too about that season having such a crazy schedule that it was playing a 24 game season in, in a pretty compressed period. So I, I feel like mm-hmm. when I look back at the arc of the season where it's just like, it's just so tiring, yeah. <laughs> right? Like the, those last six weeks. Maybe four four weeks were, were were pretty brutal, but you know it, it was so fun to go back and, and watch that game and just uh, you know the first jersey and the first everything and 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 of course you know the first yellow card earned by you in, in one, of, <laughs> one of my favorite incidents you know that, that that became a meme briefly of you know your your half collision with nutting ongerer and the don't make me ongerer joke that came out of that. I, I still use that occasionally. If, you know, that's Dean. The best part about that is when I've actually recently uh, got to know Nadine through Babette, the German player. And, you know, she's like, 
I'm like, I didn't think Nadine knew who I was, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. just because she, in my mind, she's such a world-class keeper. I mean, she's won everything. And actually when I finished in Germany, you know, it's kind of really comes to a realization, just how big of a superstar or a football player she was and still is to be fair in the, in the yeah. women's game or in German in general. And, you know, we were just joking about, I haven't actually talked to her, but you know, it's just a joke. Yeah. I will always remember Ella because she hit me and I'm like, Nadine. <laughs> I didn't hit I, you. <laughs> this is five years later. And I still don't remember, like, you know, the memes of her yelling at me. I just honestly yeah. didn't hear her. Yeah. Or was it? Yeah. But I look, I look very cool, I think, at that moment. But I just, you know, it's just, <laughs> you kind of black out a little bit. <laughs> well, and I also had forgotten until watching that, that first game. Um, I guess there's a comment that I make in the, in the broadcast about how you had said you had had never had any injuries in soccer other than broken noses <laughs> yep and and then i think it was later that season you got a broken nose again or maybe the the, the next season but <laughs> yep. like little little tidbits like that to, to make it fun going back to you know that that first year and it's crazy to think but in a good way that you know this will be the seventh season for the dash the eighth season for the league as you know we all remember that you know wps barely made it through three so it's exactly you know it's it's such a great thing but uh but jumping forward into into the into the current situation and also the the last playing year for you last year was your your last year playing pro soccer you were with Wolfsburg in Germany uh, and you guys won the Bundesliga tell tell me about that tell me about the move from from Sweden you know making the decision to go to Wolfsburg and what what it was like to play in the Bundesliga yeah you know I joke I was only there for a year and a half but my resume just got so much better because in a year and a half I won the Pokal twice and I won the Bundesliga twice and for a 32 year old at that time when I or I guess 33 when I finished you know that's kind of unheard of as a non-national team player yeah just to have that kind of success and you know Wolfsburg is hands down probably minus the 2009 WPS team with Chicago uh-huh. When I was just kind of starstruck with the players around me. I mean, we had, I think, 11 national team captains. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's really an experience that I think it was a hard one because you have to learn. Maybe it's, this is a business. It was my first time where I was like, it's not the, okay, we fight for each other. We play for each other. It's not that. the menta- I mean, of course you fight for the team, but at the same time now, when you play a game or you don't play a game, you have a game bonus. And it can change as someone's check. And that was the first time that I've really gotten into that. Or when we would win the league or um, Poco, we'd have a huge bonus at the end of the season. So there's all these different kind of extra motivations to make you be this winning mentality, if that makes sense. And that was my first time really experiencing that. Um, and, and that's got to be intense competition. Oh, I mean, I've, well, one, I, I, I'm very happy, you know, I'm, I'm quite open with things, but in 18 months of training there, um, I peed myself once, definitely puked two or three times just from the training alone, from how hard we ran. <laughs> so I've, I've really experienced though, you know, when people run in a marathon and they say that you've lose like all sense of your body. I, uh-huh. I've been there. I've done that. And it was a lot shorter time. Um, well, and it's funny to hear that because I think the the cliche that we have about most European women's soccer is that it's not as athletic, but clearly something has changed. 
I think the lactic acid test alone that we do for training, um, I know that at least 15 of the girls have above a four point or lactic, which is phenomenal. And I know at least eight of those girls um, have better lactics than professional 800 meter runners to put that in. Wow. Wow. That's intense. Well, it's also cool that that stuff is tracked, right? And that's, I think that's a big difference we've seen in professional soccer over like the last 10 and 10 to 15 years, just how much that, that stuff is tracked. Yeah. You know. I think it's the technology there. You wear heart rate for everything. Every run you do in preseason, for example, was marked. So we'd have these three or four really crazy runs in seven days and you go out and, you know, you wear your heart rate and your polar, then just upload it. So it didn't matter if I was in Vancouver or Chicago or Germany, they could see right away with an app. Okay. Ella did her workout. Okay. She hit her distance and her heart rate or, okay, no, she didn't. We have to get a hold of her and say, okay, this isn't good enough. Now, did you ever have any of your teammates say, Hey, I'm thinking about playing an NWSL. Should I go? (laughs) Actually, um, I did. I had quite a bit. And, you know, I, I think the NWSL is, how do you say this without sounding um, interesting? I think the NWSL has taken huge strides, like you said. And I think that there's been some great framework and the fact that it's gone seven years, it's incredible. And now that I'm, okay, I'm I'm recently into the newer step, but if I was a coach, for example, I think it's hard to really develop a player when you only play still such a short amount of time. And so for me, I tell the girls, if they're going to finish a career, and they want to really enjoy it and be treated as like a true, like a professional and play in these incredible stadiums, go play in front of 20,000 in Portland, or now you have Orlando. Now you have even New Jersey getting involved in the men's team, like Houston. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. then you should definitely go. I think every player should experience it because it's also on the other hand, a very short time away from your family. And it's an incredible experience. But I would also say to the, if you're a pride national team player, 22 to 25, 26, I wouldn't necessarily go because you're not able to develop and play year round. I mean, Bundesliga for Wolfsburg, for example, I was there in July mm-hmm. and I was done end of June. Non-national, I was playing football every single day or well, minus one day of rest. And this is cup champions league. So it's even, you have so many more games than just the league. Well, and that's why I think the NWSL is on the cusp of getting to that length of season. Um, you know how the last several years we've seen NWSL and the and the W League kind of be partner leagues where a player can play in both, right? That the seasons yeah. didn't overlap. Um, you know, you can't do that anymore. That you know, this NWSL season is already scheduled to go into November. Um, you know, they were finally spacing it out. So you weren't always having, you know, three games a week. But like you were saying, I, I think we've got to get to the point where you've got more than a, a 24 game season, right? Like either there's competition against Mexican clubs or, or something like that, or more teams in there. You know, and we know that um, there should be um, a 10th team for 2021, two more teams in 2022, mm-hmm. but still like, like, what I love about um, the European calendar is you guys not only get the league play, but then you have the cut play that's, you know, just so within your country, kind of like we have us open cup for men. And then you have the champions league competition too. So like you're saying right. that you really get to develop and there's, there's so much of that 
that, you know, like can't really come about here until we have more teams and then also more more leagues in other countries. But, you know, I, I feel like we're go heading in that direction. But I agree with your advice to to a player, uh, you know, playing playing in in the Bundesliga that it's like, yeah, and Nibisel could be really good, but it depends on where you are in your career and, and what you're looking to get out of exactly. it. Exactly. And it's also interesting, you know, I've, I've heard the rumors of Marjan, for example, going to Lyon, I mean, or sorry, Seattle, Lyon. And for me, that's also a very interesting partnership because like you said, if Lyon is backing an NWLs team and they, they have this incredible first team, probably best in the world, but now they can send players that maybe they're top players that want to go or they're not situated, but they can still say, go play in the States for six months, but then come help us win a Champions League title. Is that right. fair? I don't, I mean, they're paying them. Is it, they get to have yeah. another experience. They want to learn English for whatever reason. You know, Marjan's a very interesting because I think, I mean, I've watched her play for years and I have never seen someone do something like, she can with the ball. I mean, she's just absolutely, she's absolutely incredible to me. Um, so, but she's also someone that she's so good that she's allowed to go to the U S if it happens yeah. to develop because she'll go into national team. It'll be harder travel, but you know, she's still going to be able to become better because she has that mentality. So now Seattle, in my opinion, has a step in the door because they say, Hey, come play for me. 23, 24, 25. Oh, this kid's really good. We're going to sign you at Lyon. Yeah. It's like a feeder team in a way, if that makes sense. So Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I'm sure there's gonna be some restrictions about that, but but yeah, you've you've still made those connections. And I also think about a European player coming over to the US and experiencing the incredible travel that no, you can't just take a bus or a train to any match, like everything's a flight. Yeah, exactly. You know, so just just a different experience. But anyway, let let's talk um, more about what you've been doing since you retired. You retired at mm-hmm. the end of the 2018-19 Bundesliga season, um, and you launched a business. So so tell me about that business. Yeah, I launched Doyen Sport with um, a guy from England, actually Lucas Me, um, and it was pretty much the thing of okay, I, I'm finished, and all of a sudden it goes black. And you get to this feeling of, okay, I've had this great career internationally. Um, I've done these so many things and these incredible teams, some of the best women's team in Europe. And it's not said in a cocky way. It's just said of a, a reality of saying, I should have an opportunity to work. If I feel like if I was a men's player and I've played for PSG, you've played for Houston, you've captained these teams, you've, you've won these titles. Some team would be like, oh, what experience. She speaks three languages. Let's have her, let's have him quote unquote, let's have him come into us and help develop. Right. However, in, in my situation, I did have a job offer from the U23s at Wolfsburg, which I was very happy about. Um, but it was still a situation of, I have to fight for this role. I have to fight what's next. And I was lucky because I knew I was going to do my B license. I knew I was going to progress into coaching. But so many of these women, especially, let's say, in England, is which where we're based, they don't have an opportunity to transition into something after football because they're not celebrated as professional athletes. So, and so what was so what, what was the business plan that came out of that? Yeah, it was just um, we're based mostly in England right now because we want to still in the kind of startup. We're only, we're the, the same amount of my time of me retired, so eight months or so, um, and we're just trying to now create a network of things to help players transition out of their career. So, for example, um, I've used Ali Riley before, but before she was in Chelsea. 
Um, she loves to cook. Everybody knows that. So I know the footballer and my business partner, Lucas, he knows he worked with men's football for five years. And he was like connector of when a men's player was done retiring, they would go do Sky Sports. They would go do, you know, betting companies because then you can be real Ferdinand and say, I think Man United will beat Man City 2-1. Okay, here's 10, 15 grand for your five minutes of time. That's nice. the men's reality. You're right, you know? right. There's, yeah, more money, there's more money coming after your playing career is ending. Yeah, because you can open so many things that you can't necessarily do during. And this is if you don't want to be a coach or something involved in football. And so he got to know these professional chefs, these professional bakers, these accountants, all these people. And so back to Ali Riley and this, I'm sorry if it's confusing, but it's best with examples. Um, with Ali Riley, she loves to cook. So if she would have stayed in Chelsea, the last, and this was the end of her career, we'd say, Hey, Al, like we know this professional chef. Why don't you go in for an internship for the next six months? You know, once a week, once a month, whatever you prefer, see if you like it. And then, so we're helping her see that this is her love and her passion, her hobby. And then we can also help her transition to make the connections that you need to make an easier connection after football because the reality is, is a girl that's played 10 years in the FAWSL, maybe Max can't work for a year. And this is probably the top, top professionals, maybe two years. And these are girls that have England contracts, Nike contracts. I'm talking about the middle of the pack or maybe ones that were just the 12th, 13th player most of their career, but still they were professional athletes. Right. And, and playing so want, with and against some of the best players in the world. Exactly. So that's that's kind of our groundwork is that we really want to help build these women uh, in the environment. Because for me, it's too late. I'm done with my, my career. I mean, I'm transitioning. But for these women, it's just so it's not so scary. And more importantly, that you're not alone, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, I think that's, that's an important piece, uh, especially when you know, the focus has been at least, you know, here in the States, how can we get uh, the NWSL players paid more? And, you know, with the latest compensation, you know, it's it basically annualizes a, even the minimum player salary annualizes to something in the mid 40s. Right. Which is yeah, huge exactly. compared to what, you know, you, you think of the first season. But there's still that bigger picture of if someone has given up. Um, you know, their 20s to play professionally and haven't developed another career. Yeah. What happens when you, when you stop playing? So that's, I think that's an important piece of, uh, of the whole arc, right. You know, just uh, kind of, it makes me think of, you know, probably some of the problems with like the English youth academies where the kids that don't make it, you know, come out at seven and 17, 18 and have no skills. Exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, similar, similar to that, but, uh, yeah, so it's actually, I was speaking at that point, I was actually at a conference this summer and a man spoke to, he goes in and he helps with all the social media with all these academies. And he was saying that when you go into a top academy, I'm talking about man city, man United, and you have this room of 20 boys, say 17, 18 years old, the percentage of these boys that will come out is less than, um, 5%. Right. I mean, if you think about that and you put it in and it's like, by the time he said, by the time they're 23, less than 5% will have anything to do with football. It's not playing in second, third division. This is saying from 18 to 23, something happens where only 5% of these boys of the top academies will have anything to do with football. 
and it's just yeah it's some mind-numbing numbers mm. it's, yeah um you know kind of not <laughs> we shouldn't have to sacrifice that many people to get <laughs> you know exactly to get to get decent players so how do you how do you grow this business i mean do you just start um reaching out to anybody you've played with or worked with or how does that work yeah, I've been doing a we we've been doing a couple of asks like different interviews, um, and that's just kind of to generate a little bit of you know social media, um, I guess um, what's the word in English? Oh my awareness, gosh, awareness, exposure, awareness, exposure. Thank you. <laughs> I speak German and Spanish most of my days these days. I'm so sorry about that, but um, yeah, I think exposure and also to show like these girls' stories. You know, it's. It's incredible here just how much the game's changed and how it started and just kind of the stories that have kind of shaped the game in a way, if that makes sense. Um, and then it's just about making connections. Like anything you've learned, I'm sure, in your sport, it's you can have an incredible resume. You can have done some of the best work that people could think in your in your field, but it's all about who you know. And lucky for us, a lot of people are willing to help. Um so and and they're interested and for us it's easy because all these girls have so many so many incredible stories and the women's game is changing now where you can really create a social platform for yourself um it is the game is changing um and how do you and, think how do you think uh okay. how do you think uh it's changed in Europe since the world cup last summer um because i think the the story of women's soccer in Europe is still very different from from the one in the U.S. and and obviously mm-hmm. you've got many different countries, but you having seen women's soccer in Germany, women's soccer in Sweden, mm-hmm. um, you know now now living in Spain uh, and and launching this this business, you know wh- what do you see the traje- trajectory of the game there in terms of I mean is there is there more coverage, more acceptance, more awareness? Um, um, I think it really depends on the country, to be fair. Like, you really have to give England credit because even in Spain, I can watch every single game of the FAWSL. Their app is truly incredible. Um, for example, in Germany, it's you can't watch top league games. Like when Wolfsburg played Bayern, which is arguably some of the top teams in women's football, uh-huh. you can't watch their game, which I think is incredibly sad. Um, so I think it really depends on the teams and the country. But I think that we joke, I joke now, if I was three years younger, my career would be completely different because now you have these great Nike deals. You have these companies coming in and saying, you know, you just saw Lika Martins on a commercial with Lionel Messi and and Paul Pogba. You saw Becky Sovereign in the Adidas commercial. You know, these are, these are things that even two years ago, I think with Lika's it's, it's, okay, she's a superstar in her own right, but it's it's still these huge steps that, you know, you saw kind of Carly take him after the 2015 World Cup, but now you can start to see more faces and different faces that are really starting to ele- elevate the game. So I think in Europe, we're ahead of that. Um, but I also think it depends on the league. Like here in, in Spain for Real Madrid, they're the biggest team in the world, arguably. And, okay, Tacón will be transitioning into Real Madrid but you know for me going to the Real Madrid training facilities and just seeing this complex which I've never seen in my life it's like (laughs) it's truly incredible to see that and also you can see they show every home game on tv 
And then you see Bilbao play um, Barcelona and 40,000 people come. That's awesome. So it, it, there's, there's many big things, but I think the most important thing more than the social media is that, you know, you saw a huge step in Spain this, this year with the big teams that really earn a lot of money, your Barcelona, your Tacones from players wise, Atletico Madrid support the teams that don't earn a lot of money to say, no, no, we need a league standard. We need us to come together. The big teams won't play without the small teams having the right opportunity or the same financial opportunity as we have. Yeah, you got to like you know, it seems like most of the clubs are starting to think, you know, hey, there's an opportunity in women's soccer as opposed to, oh, I don't want that cost. It's like, no, there's exactly. you can make money off of this too. I mean, of course the concern right now is, you know, what is what is the how does the quarantine affect these clubs and and these leagues because historically we have seen women's football and youth football to be the first thing cut you know, when times are tight, but, you know, hopefully with the momentum from last year that, you know, th- things, things will be different this time or, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. But I, I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk. And, and I know, um, I know a lot of Dash and NWSL fans will be, will be happy to, to hear your voice, even in, in its really strange accent. <laughs> thank, Jen, thanks for taking time. I, I miss it. I, I still think some of my best football and life memories are from my time in the NWSL and who knows in this coaching path I'm on, but I hope one day I'm, I'm back in one way or another, that's for sure. Time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, golden goals. Uh, You're going to hear Dan and I talk about golden goals in the next segment. So for those of you that might not be aware what they are, um, this was basically uh, from the era in, in FIFA where if a game went to extra time, the first person that scored, game was over. Um, as opposed to the way it is now, if a game goes to extra time, you play an entire 30 minutes of extra time. Um, golden goal, or as some call it, sudden death, that, that format's been around a long time, but it was only used officially in FIFA from 1993 through 2003. So, uh, there's only a, a short time where you have those those goals happening, and, and there were several significant golden goals. Uh, and what I think is interesting is that the very last golden goal in a FIFA competition was in the 2003 Women's World Cup, where Germany defeated Sweden 2-1. Um, you also had a golden goal in the 2000 Euro final in the very first MLS Cup back in 1996. Uh, you had some in the 98 World Cup and of course the ones that uh, Dan and I reference. We've got uh, let's see Abby, Abby Wambach has scored three golden goals in her career um, and that's just international. That's not even it's not even counting club. Um, and of course, the entire NWSL era happened after Golden Goal. So the extra time goals that we talk about uh, in the NWSL Portland Western Year Flash game, right? Like none of those would have ended the game. But so there was just that short period from 93 
2003, where golden goal was the uh, the official rule uh, for FIFA, and so any leagues, uh, you know, that were associated with FIFA followed that rule as well. But since 2004, it's been a full 30 minutes of extra time. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with her favorite partner in soccer crime, or I guess soccer chat, right, Dan? We're partners in soccer chat, soccer ranting, soccer stats. Are we now on a point in the soccer calendar where I'm not allowed to be grumpy because it's kind of like accepted that that everybody's grumpy, so I have to now be happy? No, I, I, I think you're granted a pretty fair amount of grumpiness because I'm sure you've been locked at home for the last several weeks, right? And there, and there hasn't been live sports. So hasn't been. You know, you get some extra grumpiness and and I will give your wife some extra grumpiness too. She probably deserves more than me in that, <laughs> in that exchange. You know, I I always said that sports is like the old friend that is always there. And it's uh, and it's been never... it's been ghosting us. Yeah, I never thought it would come to this. And I've never been so excited to watch the WNBA draft. (laughs) Well, so instead of WNBA draft talk, obviously we're going to do women's soccer talk. And I thought um, something that Dan and I would be great to chat about would be old women's soccer games that people need to see if they haven't seen already. And especially a few games that, you know, aren't going to be replayed by FIFA or the NWSL or, or, or the Olympics. Um, So we're going to talk about four games. All of these are available in their entirety on YouTube. And I will put links on keepernotes.com as well as uh, the hosting page for, for the podcast. Um, So, we're going to start with Dan. The first game that you and I were both at. I don't. I don't think there's a game earlier than. No, I guess this would have been the second game we were both at. The 2003 WSA final in San Diego. You were in the press box. I was mostly in the stands, a little bit on the field. I had uh, a little bit of a job helping. What was the, the game. What was the What was the first game we were both? Well, at? I realized I was at the 2002 final, so you would have been there okay. too. But yeah, I wasn't. Was I wasn't at 2001, so that that's okay. probably yeah. This is one of the earliest games where our paths would have crossed, but did not cross. You may have sat next to my wife, who was not my wife then, but was in the stands for both those games. <laughs> that would be funny. That would be really funny. All right. So the the WSA final, and this was the last final. This was the the third season of the league. Uh, Washington Freedom versus Atlanta Beat. Uh, I I think back of of that year as really the best of Abby and Mia. Um, it was Abby's Absolutely. second season as a pro. It was Mia's first full season after having missed a little bit of 2002 because of knee surgery and then basically used as a sub for the the rest of 2002. And I feel that that season was the season that clinched Abby's spot on the national team. She'd had a couple of call-ups in 2002. She got left off roster for friendlies in 2003, but she picked herself up and blew through that season and never looked back. I think it was Mark Krikorian I was talking to toward the end of that season. Or you know what? I think I actually bumped into Mark Krikorian at the World Cup, which got moved to the U.S. later that year. And he said to me, 
there is no doubt Abby Wambach is the best player in the world. And I probably didn't have as good a sense then as I do now about players beyond the WUSA. I think I was part of that bubble that just assumed, well, this is the best league in the world and the best players are here. But she was fabulous because, like you said, she defended like no forward I think I've ever seen. She would put all the pressure on the opposing team's back line. And you're right, her and Mia Hamm defending. They started their... You know, the reason they were such a great tandem is they defended. They're the best pair of defensive forwards I've ever seen play together. And that really did make the the freedom go. And I apologize if I call them the spirit at some point in this conversation. But, <laughs> um, yeah, that made them go. And you're right, Mia in 2002 just barely started to get into form at the end of that season. But oh three, they were dynamite together. And they had been runners up in 2002, uh, you know, getting to the final, losing 3-2 to Carolina Courage. And of course, Mia had one of those two goals for the freedom. Great goal too. Yeah. And they didn't finish on top of the standings uh, in, in 2003. No, they, didn't uh, even get a, they were third, never got, never had a home playoff game. Yeah. So they, they ousted Philadelphia. I think it was 1-0 uh, in that semifinal. And then they were facing San Diego. No, sorry. They're facing Atlanta in the final who had narrowly gotten past San Diego in the semifinal. Right, but the, the Philadelphia game was 0-2. 0-3, they beat the Breakers in a shootout. Oh, after thank you. Thank you. Draw. And I will tell you that that game I know we're supposed to be sticking to the game we're talking about, but that 0-3 semi is the best defensive effort I ever saw in that league from the uh, Freedom, and that was 0-0, and they won it in the shootout. And I would say the worst penalty kick attempts by the Boston Breakers I've I've ever seen. But anyway, the final. Let's yeah. Now that now that uh, Dan's got me straight, it was Washington, Boston in the semis. So Washington going through, beating the number one seed in the semifinal. Right. And Atlanta needed a stoppage time goal to force uh, sudden death extra time in San Diego, or might have yeah. been. I don't remember where the it was. Yeah, definitely it, it was, against it was San at, Diego. It was it was in Atlanta. In Atlanta, because uh, they had finished second, hosting San Diego. San Diego already knew that the final would be played in San Diego. So they knew if they won that game, they'd get to play the final at home. And when we never had a WSA team get to play a final at home. So like you said, it took a stoppage time goal from Atlanta to tie it one, one send it into extra time. And this was still the era of golden goal. This was the final year that golden goal was used. And then Charmaine Hooper, I love her, 35-year-old Charmaine Hooper at, at the time, a blast by Joy Fawcett, gets the goal pretty soon in, into extra time to send Atlanta to the final for the second time. So here you had two teams that had both been to the final before. Neither one had won the final before. Both had, had lost in you know pretty close fashion. Um, and when I went back and looked at the the rosters for these teams, it's just such amazing names like Atlanta, Brianna Scurry, Charlton Nonan from Canada, Nikki Strelingo playing the Olympics, Cindy Parlo, Homari Sawa, like, you know, what it was this eight years before she was the golden ball at the 2011 Women's World Cup. Charmaine Hooper. And we thought, we thought <laughs> Sawa was, was a veteran then. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was so solid. And you had Kylie Bivens on defense who ended up making her first World Cup roster. Of course, the Augustiniak twins. And then for the freedom, in addition to Abby and Mia, you had Siri Mullenix in goal, who I think had the best club season of her career in 2003. Yep, for sure. 
Jen Grubb, who had a couple of caps for the national team in the, in the late 90s, uh, but was just such a stalwart defender, leader. I, re- I remember hearing about how like she took the, the she was the place kicker for her football team in high school. That's right. You know, um, and then you had the 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 German triumvirate, let's say, of Steffi Jones, uh, Jennifer Meyer, Sandra Minert, you know, uh, and also Kelly Golubiowski from from Australia. So really solid rosters. Um, and game in San Diego, only a seven thousand seater, but I but I loved that that venue. Um, you know, gorgeous weather. And even though we didn't know it at that on that day, it, that really was the last gasp for the WSA. They folded yeah. what three weeks later. Uh, yeah, they folded. It was the Monday before the World Cup, which was what middle of September, and the final yeah. was toward the end of August. I don't want to get off the beaten yeah. path, but I, when I watched that game, and I remember the press box there it was one of those press boxes where the window panes are like maybe a foot and a half, and then there's a big black you know, stretch that splits all the window panes. So I went outside to watch the game <laughs> by myself next to the press box, and I watched that game with it in the back of my mind that this was going to be the last WSA game. I, you know, it just, there was just a weird feeling around it, you know, and as you know, the, there were not that many different investors. So basically they couldn't live with it, even though they had probably richer investors than we've had in these other two leagues, they couldn't afford to lose any because everybody was owning multiple teams, but I just kind of and watched that so, game thinking they were to myself, so this might be it. They were so overextended right, exactly. by, by, by the first season. They made huge leaps in the second and third seasons to control costs. And also they were seeing revenue going up. It just wasn't happening fast enough. And I, I also remember at the end of that game, Abby Wambach getting MVP and being presented with a car. When's the last time we had an MVP of a final get a car? Yeah, probably then. <laughs> so so this ended up being a, a 2-1 decision, again, with a golden goal uh, deciding the game and a golden goal from Abby. It was almost Mia's goal, but but a- Abby took it and you could tell Mia didn't really care. <laughs> it's like, we won. Right. We don't care. Yeah. Um, yeah well, Mia never such... scored in big games, right? Yeah, but it was such a, such a tight, tight match. I just remember being... Uh, just so nervous the entire game well the the the, uh you know what's amazing is that that league had nine playoff games in three years and i think eight of them were like edge of your seat minute one to minute 90 or beyond like nail biters it was really remarkable how good the playoffs were every year in that league but the the two moments in that game that stand out to me you mentioned sandra minnett who was an outside back for washington She took a free kick in this game, and Jim Gabara told me years later that he was already starting to celebrate that they had scored the goal, and Brianna Scurry made one of the most amazing saves that I've ever seen, and it is just remarkable. It was ticketed for the corner, and Scurry got up and knocked it away. And that it was one of those moments where you could hear J.P. Della Camera saying, remember that one, even though, <laughs> you know, Atlanta wound up not winning that game. But that was a moment where you thought maybe this is Atlanta's year. And then right before the goal, in the extra time, sudden death, as you said, Nancy Augustiniak, who probably had the best game of her life, uh, mostly marking Abby Wambach, 
they got in where they were both going after the ball, and Augustiniak had to make a decision. Do I let Juan back in behind, or do I take a chance and foul her? She took the chance. She fouled her. She was the last defender. She got sent off. I remember Abby complained because she wasn't happy enough with the red card. She thought the foul was in the box. I don't think it was. But it, was it was just like it was it, so it, close. Exactly. But I, what, what I remember is that it, they were the two best players in that game, Abby Wambach and Nancy Augustiniak. And the game was decided on a 50-50 ball between those two. And, no, you know, Augustiniak had to take the bullet, and uh, they didn't score on the free kick. But I, if I remember correctly, I don't think Atlanta ever got possession again before they did score. And the game had been 1-1 at halftime with Wambach getting an early goal, Charmaine Hooper equalizing with a penalty kick late in first half stoppage, and then we had a scoreless second half. So it really took to, it was what, like six, maybe six minutes in uh, to extra time. And again, reminder, yeah. it was it was golden goal. So, you know, game over. Um, and, you know, Wambach, was such an incredible season. That was her 14th and 15th goal of the season. She had 13 the regular season and a brace in that game. So of course she won the car as as MVP. Right. And and a few days later learns that you know she made her first World Cup roster. And one of the things I remember about that game is they had the entire national team, except obviously the ones who were playing for the the freedom or, or the beat sitting in a special set of bleachers to the side of the public stands, right? Like, and then they're in their um, like training uniforms watching the game. And I just remember it's like, they were in complete direct sun. I'm sure it wasn't easy for them to like, go get water. Thing like that. It was like, Hey, you've got a great seat. It's just going to be really hot. <laughs> yeah. And I actually remember they took us to watch the national team train at the Olympic center, which right. is maybe the most tranquil place I've ever been. In my life, if anybody's ever been to the Maryland Soccerplex, it's like the Maryland Soccerplex times 10 in terms yeah. of how tranquil the setting is. And I remember Heather O'Reilly, who did not make that that World Cup team, and she had broken her leg, was training on the side, and that was my first glimpse at, like, it, like it was exactly the vision that you would see of Heather O'Reilly today, just working as hard as she possibly could. That's, you know, that's And that was barely that's two months after breaking about. her leg. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she was. It was. It was close, but you know, she was working hard, and she basically did that from then and before that, all the way up until a couple months ago. We'll talk a little bit about the two coaches from this match. Just what what you remember, Dan. I mean, Tom Stone for the Atlanta Beat. He took him to the playoffs all three seasons. The only team to make the playoffs all three seasons. Um, you know, he's now been at Texas Tech for a long time, developing players like Janine Becky. Um, Jaylene Hinkle, uh, and he was also part of the 2008 Under-20 Women's World Cup team, helping Tony DeChico lead that team to a gold medal in, in Chile. But yeah, what do you, you remember know, I, about Tom? I didn't know a lot about these guys when the league started. I, that was, you know, the beginning of that league was kind of the beginning of me really learning a lot about the women's game. But what I remember about Tom Stone was that he was the brash coach, and his team's played in a brash manner. They were the team that was the first, they were the first team to be good when the league began in 2001. If you remember the first few weeks of that league, there was some dreadful soccer. 
Nobody was attacking. It was, you know, everybody was falling back into shape as soon as they gave the ball away, which obviously is no, not a bad thing. But soccer was not good, but the beat was the first team to be good. And he was the first coach to really say, these are, these are good players, and I'm going to put them in positions to be good. And you mentioned Kylie Bivens and Geralta Nonan, and they had Cindy Parlow on that team and Scurry. And, you know, uh, Nikki Serlinga, I thought, was a very underrated player at that time. Um, and that's what I remember about Tom Stone. He wasn't afraid to back it up. And when things went poorly for the beat, which wasn't that often, you know, he would not run from that either. And I also remember before that 03 final, the previous year, the beat were playing the Carolina Courage in the semi. They were up a goal, and Marcy Miller went in for a really bad decision tackle and got sent off and then the beat were down um to 10 and they almost did it but they wound up giving up a late goal and then lost in extra time and i remember when i talked to tom stone at the final a couple days before that game in 03 he said the first thing he thought about when they beat the spirit was marcy miller and how tough it must have been for her to live all year knowing that she made a mistake on the tackle. And, you know, I just, I don't think a lot of coaches think that way. I don't think a lot of coaches speak that way publicly. And that told me a lot about Tom Stone and probably is a lot of the reason why he's a pretty successful college coach right now. But I do wonder how often it bugs him because they had three really good teams and lost incredibly difficult games in the playoffs all three seasons. And then Jim Gabera, who kind of fell into coaching the Washington Freedom. He had uh, been coaching the national teamers when they did an indoor tour. They did their own tour, so it wasn't part of U.S. soccer. So it was like U.S. stars versus world all-stars, and they had asked him to be their coach, and you know he did pretty well. So when Mia Hamm ended up allocated to Washington Freedom, you know, she's like, hey, how about, how about Jim? And they really struggled that first season, 2001, um, but kind of started over 2002, made a lot of roster moves, picked up Abby with the number two overall pick, and boom, they're in the playoffs 2002 and 2003. And, and he's, the only one, he's the only one that coached, uh, right, WSA, WPS, and NWSL. Yeah, he was until they he got till he got fired by the uh spirit, he had been a coach every week that there had been women's pro soccer right into the middle of two thousand eighteen. You know, they started over in O two, but also in some ways they didn't start over in O two. And I will say that Jim Gabara was one of the first coaches that I developed a relationship with where he would tell me some things and I would get some off the record information and he had his outside backs were Emmy Barr and Skylar Little. And nobody really knew a lot about them. They were young. And in 2001, they were dreadful. But he had confidence in those two players. And he kept them on as the outside backs. So I know Minard came in and, um, you, know, it, you know, maybe they weren't the outside backs for every game. But he stuck with those players, Barr and Little. And I just remember, like, in talking to him, being able to kind of understand his plan. And certainly Abby Wambach coming in. You know, it is a pretty good thing because, as you mentioned, Abby Wambach was fabulous for those two years in WUSA. But I admired how Jim Gabara built up that team. You know, he's, you know, he was the anti-Tom Stone, where he was a man of few words. 
Right. You know, he didn't really come out and, and say a lot. And I think that probably later in his career started to do him in a little bit because uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that he adapted as well as he needed to as the players changed. But, you know, he had a very clear vision. And I still, but to me, the 03 Washington Freedom are one of the top two or three teams just in terms of enjoyment of watching. And like I said, the way Abby and Mia uh, you know, play defense on their own side, started counterattacks. You know, they they were a lot of fun to watch. I was happy when they when they got it done. And and I'm hoping to track down more WSA games that I can convert to digital and 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 put up on YouTube for everyone to enjoy. So anyone out there that has a VHS tape from that era, I will convert it to digital if you send it to me. So email keeper at keepernotes.com if you've got a videotape. And there's another game that they played, and I can't remember if it was 02 or 03, but it was one of those years. It was in Washington. It was about as hot as it can be and able to play soccer. And the Freedom won the game late. And I think they got in the playoffs by winning. And obviously Atlanta got in also. And so I don't oh, remember the was date. That, was that the Washington-Atlanta game from early August 2002? I, probably because it was definitely yeah. in the heat of the summer. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, I had work in DC at the time. I went to that one. That was up, so that was that was the first game we were both oh. at then. Dun, dun, that, dun. Was the, that was the game where I was forty feet behind Mia Ham and heard the uh, the the high pitched Mia squeals for the first time. And I was like, <laughs> this is the real deal. But but Tom Stone, when we we talked to Tom Stone after that match. And it was obviously a tough loss. And he said, before we even asked him a question, he said, I just want to say that we all wear two hats in this league. I'm the head coach of the Atlanta beat, but I'm also invested in the future of this league. And that is the best and highest quality game that I've ever been a part of. And I thought that said a lot for a coach that just got a tough beat to be able to say that. All right. Well, let's move on to another great Abby game, uh, the 2011 Women's World Cup quarterfinal, USA versus Brazil, which FIFA TV uh, on YouTube is going to show on Monday. Um, and I, I love this game for, for so many reasons, but mostly is just the place that it occupies in women's soccer history, because a lot of people don't realize that that was the first women's world cup where the USA didn't win their group. So they ended up facing Brazil instead of Australia in the quarterfinal. It also meant that they played in the later quarterfinal. Um, so it was a game that more people watched where if they played Australia, if they'd won the group and played Australia, they would have played at 6am on a Sunday, 6am central time. Um, they would have won. It wouldn't have gone into extra time and it there wouldn't have been a lot of people watching, but because it ended up being the 9 a.m. Central Time kickoff and then went into extra time, you got so many more people watching this game and seeing just what an amazing team uh, the the USA were. Um, I, I feel like it's it's almost like fate that 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 matchup happened. We've all, we've talked about this a bit on the Equalizer podcast. Ninety nine was the foundation for what has become of women's soccer, but the two thousand eleven quarterfinal is the nexus of modern women's soccer. That is the moment that I think if you polled, if you went to a w, uh, an NWSL game and polled everybody in the stands, I think more people would point back to that game as the one that got them into it. You mentioned it was kind of early in the day. 
So it wasn't conflicting with a lot of other sporting events, but it wasn't so early that people had to set the alarm to get out of bed for it. And, you know, it probably wasn't the best game we've ever seen. Uh, I contend that, you know, looking at it objectively, it was probably as much about Brazil's inability to win it as it was the U.S. making the comeback. Right. But that moment, and I, you know, I don't feel like that's a game that I would go back and watch and be riveted to, because again, I don't think it was a really good game. It, I think it was, you know, some games you can go back and they're still great. I think right. certain moments you have to have lived in order to have it resonate. But that doesn't mean that, you know, everyone shouldn't go back and watch it on Monday. But yeah, that one moment it's right a tough there. One to wa- it's a tough one to watch because, uh, you know, even though we go up early uh, on a Brazil own goal, uh, but then Marta equalizes in the second half after uh, on a PK after Solo had saved the first PK, but then the ref said she came off her line or something, so right. they they had to redo it. A little foreshadowing to 2019. There. Yeah, yeah. So, so she's it, it's tied at the end of regulation goes into extra time. And now we're in the era where you play the full 30 minutes of extra time, regardless. So yep. Mar- Marta gets a goal, another goal, just two minutes into extra time. So think about it. If this were, uh, you know, back in 2003 would have been game over, but no, you play, you play the entire extra time. You had defender Rachel Van Holbeck Bueller at the time um, ejected, in the 65th minute, um, I, I tend to forget about that, that the U.S. women's national team played short for nearly yep. half the game, you know, and then you're thinking, oh, my God, this is this is going to be over. And the U.S. have never not made the semifinals of a Women's World Cup. Um, and, you know, you hear Ian Dark and Julie Foudy on the broadcast talking about, you know, that streak's going to come to an end. And then this just amazing move where we've see, all seen the highlight over and over of Rapino's nice lofting cross served on a dime to Wombach's head and the Brazilian keeper can't do anything about it. Um, but I really feel if you're watching the match, you need to go back 15 seconds and watch Christy Rampone's defensive work uh, that took possession back for the USA and started the play. She sent it through to Carly, who then sent it out wide to Rapino, who then lofted it in. Just like calm, composed. It they didn't seem to notice that it was the hundred and twenty second minute of the game and the whole game was almost over, right? Like they were playing so composed, not panicked, and at that time, uh, Abby's goal, that was the latest goal ever scored in a FIFA knockout game. And did that get Broken by Morgan in the Olympics. Yes, uh, a year later, Alex Morgan's goal against Canada was was even later. And this is also again we we're talking about Abby's like the birth of Abby for the national team in two thousand three. To me, this was the beginning of Abby's second wave, following the broken leg Correct. she suffered right before the two thousand eight Olympics. The team barely played in two thousand nine, um, and she came out. She scored fifty one goals from twenty ten. To 2012. Yeah, I don't and, uh, think she was ever. I don't think she was ever as good as she was before she broke her leg. But you're right. That was the second coming of Abby Wambach. Yeah, and so like 2010 to 2013 was just incredible. And then you know 2014 she got she had several injuries and in you know it was towards the end of her career. But uh, I also want to point out you know with that incredible header goal, 77 
of her 184 goals were scored with her head. Um, and just three of those 184 goals were scored were extra time goals. So this one against Brazil, uh, she scored again in extra time in the, the 2011 final, but her other extra time goal was against Brazil in the 2004 Olympic gold medal match. So yeah, she's got some great clutch goals. And then on the other side of, of the field, you've got, Brazil, Marta, the two two goals, two of her seventeen women's World Cup goals. Uh, she had another two against the U.S. What in the in the two thousand seven semifinal. Semi. So she's got, she's got a fair chunk of her World Cup goals <laughs> against the best team in the world. Yeah, and you know the flip side of the U.S. playing composed is that Brazil, and you mentioned it, they were up a player for what uh, almost an hour, more than an hour, almost an uh, hour, almost an hour, yeah. In the game, they played so scared in the last 10 minutes of that game. I mean, they had the lead. I think if you watched the game objectively, they were probably the better team. They were certainly better in possession. All they had to do was knock the ball around for 10 minutes, but they were flailing around, faking injuries, right? Was it Erica that got the yellow card as she was, like, running on the field after she got stretchered off for no reason? And there's actually a defender in the box on the – equalizing cross that allows Rapino, you know, more or less a free cross because Wambach didn't have to time the run because there was a Brazilian player, I believe, just coming back on the field from behind the goalkeeper. So it was a total mess by Brazil. But when the ball's in the air and you can see at one point that it's going to land on Abby Wambach's head, I feel like it was one of those times where as soon as you saw it was heading for Abby's head, you knew she was going to score. Right, right, and and I love the story she tells. Well, like she doesn't really remember scoring the go- the goal at all, right? Like it just becomes automatic. All goals, right? She said yeah. that about. Yeah, she just kind of blacks out and just <laughs> converts. And remember, they had to also win the shootout, which you know, if you think about one team composed and one team is a mess, who's most likely going to win that shootout? Probably the U.S. But imagine if they don't win that shootout. I mean, as it is, I, I think a lot of people don't remember or it doesn't resonate immediately that the U.S. didn't even win that tournament. Right, right. You know, and, and the and the, you know, the loss to Japan, that's a bad loss. I mean, they were way better than Japan in that game and had to lead twice. Right. I don't remember the minutes, but yeah, you know, I mean, they should yeah. have closed that game out two times. They, they were leading in regulation. Japan equalized. They were leading in extra time. Japan equalized. And they lost on PKs in the final. But in the quarterfinal... All five shooters converted, and and I feel like that's kind of the the coming out party for for Allie Krieger that she was the fifth kicker, right? And she was not a big name on the national team, nope. at, at at the time, but she had been playing in Germany, you know, but like that that was her home turf, and you know, and I love that she had the fifth kick, and I also feel like U.S. had a little bit of an advantage that uh, Hope Solo had already seen Marta take two different penalties against her, right? Because she had to retake the, the the penalty kick goal in the second half. Um, and and like we were talking about, the, the team was very uh, not composed, very uncomposed. Um, and I can't remember which player it was that uh, had been flopping so much that in extra time, every time she touched the ball, you could hear the whole stadium boo. Um, so, you know, Solo makes one awesome save in in that shootout and that's really like you know the final nail in the coffin for brazil yeah and that was also you know speaking of 
you know, the second coming of Abby Wambach, that was absolute peak Hope Solo time. I mean, yes, I believe she's the best female keeper we've ever seen. I think that era right there from like the 08 Olympic final to about then, because she got hurt right before NWSL started, I think from about the 08 final when she got back in good graces after the Flack in 07, 08 mm-hmm. to about 11, 12. Well, and an, and it's that, easy to forget that she did not play in 2010 qualifying because she had had major soldier, shoulder surgery and you know, didn't get a full game until May 2011. So, you know, she had just come back in time for this. They had to, I remember reading in, in her book about how they kind of had to like compress the, the rehab schedule so that she could come back in, in time. But yeah, definitely, definitely peak hope solo. And, and it is easy to forget that they did not win this tournament though. Of course they made the final, um, they were like we said they were leading twice in the final but did not have in the final they did not have the composure and momentum that Japan did having come from behind um had a different order of shooters and I'm I'm not not sure why um but what I like about that that tournament is that even when I remember when they came back like they were on Letterman I think it was it was Abby and and Hope Solo on on Letterman and like oh, there yeah, was still was there huge. was still such a like but they made the final and they played so well and you know it's a little easier as a fan to accept well we lost on PKs right like cuz it yeah, like it's still yeah, you didn't maybe. win the you didn't win the world cup but it's it's like I think packaged with that whole tournament like that incredible quarterfinal um but if Just, you think about yeah. that, the Sawa equalizer in extra time, if you run that sequence a thousand times, does she score that goal more than twice? Oh my God. It Yeah. And that, that goal, anytime I look at a replay of that, of Sawa's goal from the final, I'm like, how, how did that go in? I mean, that how, has to be. How do you defend the, that? I mean, I know the Carly midfield goal in 15, but that game was already in the, yeah. in the bag by then. The Sawa goal there has got, had, that has to be the goal in the history of the women's world cup doesn't it right yeah because like carly's goal that's a memorable goal right the, but the game was over uh, by the yeah way. the game the game was over sawa's goal is how did that happen <laughs> and you saved the game for for your country um a country but, that didn't get there all the time either you know if, yeah like you know the u.s didn't win in 11 but you know what do you know they've been in the last two finals and won them so another yeah. thing about that game is that the uh the bueller Red card opened the door for the semi against France, which nobody talks about because it was somewhat routine. That was the kind of the birth of Becky Sauerbrunn game because Sauerbrunn played that game for Bueller and was right. fabulous. Right. And she's pretty, you know, she didn't play the final, but she's pretty much been a regular on the national team ever since. And how, how does that have to feel like, hey, you're starting a World Cup game for the first time and it's the semi? Right. <laughs> um, but of course, obviously, we can we can talk about a, the semifinal game at another time. But let's move on to an end of your cell game a, f- a few years later, actually not featuring Abby, Abby Wambach, but a really great game to watch. I, I watched the whole thing this morning. Um, but I want you to set the context, Dan, for where this game was in the season and why why it's worth rewatching. We're talking Chicago Washington game. Mm-hmm. August second, twenty fourteen, at the Maryland Soccerplex. All right, now these are teams that were not great the first season. That were both getting much better. 
in uh, 2014. And basically, they were fighting it out for the fourth spot, the fourth playoff spot that year. And they came in tied on points. The Red Stars, I believe, had a game in hand going into that game. Uh, but they were tied on points. And Red Stars went up early in this game. And uh, I didn't go back and watch the entire game. But I will tell you this, the YouTube stream is pretty good. You know, some of those early games can be a little dodgy with the streaming quality, but this one's right. pretty good if you want to go back. And and, and Mike, but, Mike Minnick as a, a solo broadcaster. On nah, this, he's great. He's, he's great. He's great. He's fantastic. Uh, yeah, any game that Mike Minnick is on the is doing play by play for is worth watching just a little bit more than any other game. I'll tell you that. Um, but anyway, this this the spirit. Yeah, I'm going to try to keep my Washington teams right. The spirit tied it up, and then the last few minutes just became incredible because Melissa Tancredi sent in a cross to Kristen Press, who headed the ball, and you know it's as you know I watched it a few times right before we came on, probably one of those saves from Ashlyn Harris where the acrobatics were a little bit greater than the degree of difficulty of the save, but it was still point blank. She still had to be in the right spot. She still had to react. That shot right there should have put Chicago in the playoffs. Then as stoppage time goes on, they go back down the other end and Yael Averbush, who was not really known as a goal scorer in her career, though I will say, that she might be a player who actually scored more goals from outside the 18 than inside the 18 hit a fantastic ball from outside the 18. I don't know if it was the last kick of the game, but pretty close Washington won at two to one and a little bit more interesting about that game is that I talked to Rory Dames of the red stars a little bit after that. And he said, you know what? Not only did Averbush hit that great ball, but he pointed out to me that Diana Matheson made an incredible play on the feeder ball that came in. It was kind of she a did. long ball. It looked like it was headed out. And Matheson didn't give up on it, made a sliding touch, maintained possession, kept the play alive. That allowed Averbush uh, to hit the game-winning goal. That didn't put Washington in nor put Chicago out. They wound up tied on points. Washington had beaten Chicago already that season, so they were 2-0 in the regular season. So that was a tiebreaker. And that was, you know, that was one of, that was the first full year of Mark Parsons. He hasn't missed the playoffs yet. That was Crystal Dunn's rookie season. And we mentioned Press. That was her first season. She came, I think, maybe May or June after getting allocated and finishing up in Sweden. Red Stars haven't missed the playoffs since that season either. So a lot of interesting players and a lot of interesting things happened in that game. So, uh, you know, when we asked me about this, it was a, it was an obscure game that came to mind that people might enjoy going back to watch. Well, and that was Chicago's first goal against the Spirit in a ridiculously long time. Uh, Minnick mentions that during the broadcast. There's also such a, a great roster of players, many of whom played in the World Cup the following year or before or after. So Chicago, Karina LeBlanc in goal, uh, Lori Kolupny, Tancredi, as you mentioned, Christian Press in right. her first Kolupny season. scored the goal, right, in that game? Yeah, um, Kristen Press in her first season in NWSL, uh, JJ in her first season uh, in NWSL, Abby Urseg, uh, you know, Emily Van Egmond. And then for the, the Spirit, you mentioned Diana Matheson, who still is their leading scorer. Um, yep, and she, she still technically so in the league. 
yeah, still technically in the league. Uh, Crystal Dunn, she was a number one pick that year. That was her rookie year. Um, she wasn't playing forward as much like she does. She ended up in 2015, but you also got Krieger, Lori Lindsay, Lisa Devana, and uh, Kirsten Garifrekas from Germany. That was yes. her one year in, yeah. in WSL. Uh, you know, she had played for the 2003 and 2007 uh, German teams. That I was just going to say, not 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 the most popular player among U.S. women's national team fans because she <laughs> tore up the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Don't remind him about the 2003 World no. Cup. And you know, you had said, but you know, both of these teams hadn't played well in 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 the first season. Spirit had finished last in 2013. That's how they got the the number one overall pick for the 2014 draft. And Chicago was just out of the playoffs um in in 2013 and ended up because of the result of this game just missing the playoffs again in 2014 right but in 13 they put together some wins late and they actually finished 8 and 8 and they've never been under 500 but if you follow the trajectory of the 13 season they were never contenders to to be in the playoffs yeah yeah, the the top four teams were just so far ahead. And the Red Stars started. I mean, I think they, I mean, I remember I went, I was actually at a Red Stars flash game. Might have been like their fourth game, and the Red Stars took the lead, and the flash equalized in like two minutes. And in the press conference, Rory Dame said that was the first time we've had a lead all season. I don't think we knew how to handle it. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, they did some great things. You know, they had the late equalizer with Jen Hoy that cost FC Kansas City the shield. They were never really playoff contenders. Um, that that first year. But, you know, you mentioned Dunn being the number one pick, and she played a little higher in that game. But Mark Parsons kind of used her more as an outside back, what do you know, uh, in <laughs> 2014, and then unleashed her up top in 2015. Uh, but, you know, I think that's kind of the, you know, the birth of Mark Parsons. I don't think he gets enough credit for how good an NWSL coach that he's been. And any time the Spirit got a lead that year, like from the 70th minute on, he would just pack everything back because, I, you know, he knew they probably weren't as good as they needed to be, but they figured out a way to get points and get into the playoffs. And the next year they made some roster tweaks and, uh, you know, off when Crystal Dunn to play up top in the rest of history. She missed the World Cup. She scored 15 goals and whatnot. And the other thing is that in the early days, Washington was the team that always gave Chicago fits, no matter what, including that semifinal a few years later where Washington right. beat them in extra time in that horrible storm in uh, at the soccerplex. But the year before that, when the Red Stars were making their late push to maybe get in the playoffs, they actually got officially eliminated in a game in Washington that ended after 80 minutes when a lightning storm hit at the soccerplex. They were down, I believe, one nothing. There was a curfew at the soccerplex, so at some point in time, they had no choice but to just scrap the game, and it was official. And with ten minutes to go, and faint hopes, but hopes nonetheless of making the playoffs, you know, they wound up getting eliminated in Washington in a game that they didn't even get to play the ninety minutes. And I think what the Spirit won three times that year, and that was one of them. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's. I love being able to identify games like this that just you know, represent a great rivalry. And it's funny how some teams match up certain ways where, you know, like, like the Chicago, um, Chicago Portland matchup for the playoffs last fall that like Chicago right. had same, same coaches, by the way. Yeah. In, in such a long time. Yeah. So 
and and what I like about like this game is a great kind of segue into the last game, you know, we're going to talk about is the 2016 Portland versus Western New York Flash playoff game. You referenced the other playoff game from the 2016 season, which was Washington, Chicago. Um, that one going to extra time, like you said, in a storm. This one went to extra time. This season, the 2016 season, all three playoff games went to extra time. Um, and one of the three going to, going to PKs, it was just... I. I, I haven't seen an end of cell season yet where all three playoff games are just such crazy games. Yeah, that was like the WUSA playoffs. They were all like all three seasons were like that. We the sixteen semifinal. You know, I've been watching sports for a long time, and there are very <laughs> there are very few games that grab you from like the moment they start and keep your full attention until the very last moment. And that game is one of maybe three or four. I can think of four women's soccer games that have done that. It was, I mean, I don't even need to explain it. It was just absolutely extraordinary beginning to end. And if you do go back and watch it, keep in mind that nobody thought the flash had a chance to win that game, which makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, Flash had finished fourth on the season. So Portland getting their first ever home playoff game, you know, and their first ever NWSL Shield winning the regular season, you know, riding high, big crowd. Uh, A lot of people felt that the Flash had, you know, unfairly gotten a space in the playoffs because the schedule for 2016, you played everybody twice except you played the nearest team to you geographically four times. So Western New York Flash got to play Basement Dweller, Boston Breakers, sorry, Breakers, um, four times. But hey, that's how the cookie crumbles. Um, So, of course, if people, you know, I I think it's logical that a lot of people thought the Flash are not going to survive this game. And it got off to scoring very, very early. Yeah, they scored a couple goals quick, and he was like, wow, this is, you know, this is for real. And then Portland came back and scored one and then tied it up. And then at that point, probably everybody was thinking, all right, they survived the scare. They're going to figure out how to get the third goal. Didn't happen. Then we get, you know, you get the stoppage time. Christy Mewis, and I'm sorry, Sam Mewis in that stoppage time was off the charts fabulous. The one ball she played into Lynn Williams for one of, the goals is one of the best balls I've ever seen. And they go up by two goals and then Portland comes back and gets another one back. And then Abby Dahlkemper had to clear one off the line, I think in like the 122nd minute of this game. That's what I'm saying. There was an early near mistake by Sabrina D'Angelo. Portland almost went ahead and then they almost tied it up on a late mistake in stoppage time of extra time. You know, it was a physical game. A lot of people think that game physically planted the seeds for that horrible final that they played a year later when the flash for the North Carolina Courage. But, I mean, it was physical. It was intense. And remember how good Portland was that year. That was the year they redid their whole team. They traded Alex Morgan. They got Lindsey Horan. They got Adriana French. Emily uh, Sonnet with the number one pick. Number one pick. Um, And, you know, they were... I mean, they, I think they were 7-0-5. They, you know, first 12 games 
without tasting defeat. And I remember, he, you know, Mark Parsons telling me that, you know, there were national team players in tears on the field at the end of that game, you know, because it meant that much to them. And, uh, it, you know, it, to me, it, you know, if you ask me what is the best game in the history of the league that we have now, I think it's that game. And to me, that's, it's not worth even discussing any other games. In terms it's of the it's best. still the highest scoring playoff game. And normally that's not a good indicator of a great game exactly. to watch. Like, obviously, this wasn't a great game for the keepers, but just such a fierce game. The beginning of a great rivalry, the beginning of a dynasty, because Sam Mewis, Lynn Williams... Abby Dahlkemper, Jalen Hinkle, Abby Ursa since then have started every playoff game for that club, whether it was the Flash or or the North Carolina Courage. Um, I also and love they've the really stat played. That, I mean, that none of those players really get hurt either. Dahlkemper missed a few games of the bad knee, but I mean, they're in there all the time, no matter what, unless they're with the national teams. Right. And all of Lynn Williams' three playoff goals have come in extra time, two in this match, one uh, in the final that followed this game. We also get Sonnet's first ever NWSL goal. She hadn't scored in that regular season, uh, but gets one in, in stop and in, in extra time here. And then a month later, uh, we see Abby Dahlkemper and Lynn Williams earn their first national team caps. Yeah, and Williams scored what? Four, was it Williams? And then Ojai broke her record like 46 yeah. and 47 well, seconds or something? Williams scored 49 seconds into her debut, then Ojai 48. And this was also Lynn Williams' MVP golden boot season. You know, just in, an incredible season and an incredible game. Um, and you mentioned just, you know, from start to finish, you know, you can't take your eye off the game. But if you put it in the context of just, you know, less than 48 hours before we had all watched Washington, Chicago, and that one go to extra time and that one be a nail biter, like to have a second nail biter less than two days later is just like, you know, edge of, yeah, just a whole, a whole right. different and, level of agitated. <laughs> well, and the difference in the games is that in the, in the Washington game, we mentioned there was a storm, it, you know, the first two halves were kind of like, if you're not with the wind, you really don't have that much of a chance to score. And, you know, I mean, it was the nail biter, but it wasn't great, thrilling soccer. That was also the game where press hit the crossbar at the end of regulation. And that would right. have won it for Chicago. Um, you know, this game was back and forth edge of your seat. Like you said, can't take your eye off it. It was, uh, it was, it was really something spectacular. And as far as the flash you know, unfair. They didn't make the playoffs. And the other game that gets pointed to is the, what I call the fiasco at Frontier when they played on that small field at the baseball stadium up in Rochester against Seattle. It's, you know, it's never mentioned that they both teams played on the same field. Seattle wins that game. Seattle's in the playoffs, Flash aren't, all other things being equal. So yeah. I just want to point that out. Yeah. And also, I remember I was calling a Flash Sky Blue game on, I think it was the first weekend in May, and it was like the fourth or fifth Flash game. They still hadn't scored in the run of play all season. You know, it, you know, it was really something to see that team go from, you know, they had the talent and everybody knew that that draft class from the previous year with Hinkle and Williams and Dalkember and Mewis and D'Angelo was in that class too, was great and talented. I don't think we knew they would do what they've done from that point And, you know, and they're all still going right now, but, you know, it really was fun to see that team evolve over the course of that year and whether they got a break from the schedule maker or not, 
Um, you know, they went from being a team that really couldn't score to being a team that could score on anybody and run circles around any other team in the league. Well, and the beautiful combination play of Lynn Williams and Jessica McDonald, because, you know, it, it's easy to remember Lynn Williams getting the golden boot, 11 goals. Jess McDonald had 10 goals. So she ended up getting her, her first cap for the national team later that fall as well. And even then, even then, if I told you that she would be on the World Cup team, you probably wouldn't have believed me. Right. <laughs> I would not and have those, believed you. And those throw-ins, because she had one of those incredible long throw-ins, led to one of the goals in this 2016 semifinal we're talking about. It's really uncanny how well and how far she can throw the ball in from the sideline. It's, it's remarkable. It's a, it's a skill that you will miss when it's gone, but you don't necessarily appreciate it while it's here. Well, and the last thing I want to mention about this game was the format for the semifinals. So 2013, 2014, 2015, the semifinals were all played the same day. Um, This year, in 2016, we we had a Friday night semi and a Sunday afternoon semi. So they were able to use the same broadcast team that just traveled from DC to Portland the day between 2017. They did, we did back to back. So Saturday, Sunday. So I I was actually on that overnight flight between Portland and North Carolina, which was a little insane. 2018 would have been the same way, but with the semifinal North Carolina getting rescheduled, it ended up, everything got played in Portland. And then this past year, they went back to the same day. So I loved that Friday, Sunday format that just happened to work out well. Those games I think were on ESPN. Um, I want to say that's accurate, but I don't. ESPN or Fox, to... obviously. Six I'm trying to think if I can remember, like the. Call, oh, it's Fox. Like, one of the is it Fox? I was trying to think it's of the Fox. goal calls. I can't remember any. It's it's Jen Hildreth okay. and Kendra Dialbin. Saint D. Saint Aubin. D. Saint Aubin on the final, um, and it's Hildreth. I I think she's with Kendra for the semis, but we'll have to go back and see. Obviously, all four of these games that we've discussed, they're uh, available in their entirety on YouTube. No geo blocking, no cost involved. I will have the links prominently posted on KeeperNotes.com, and you know, definitely want to hear people's feedback about. These get a choice of these games and also my comments and Dan comments on this game, because if this is interesting to people, I would definitely want to do this again with Dan, because Dan and I just can't stop talking women's soccer, right? Absolutely. We're uh, gets not quite as easy as usual, not quite as much going on, but we can always find something to chatter about. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Um, If you haven't already seen the posts on KeeperNotes.com, you should check it out. Basically, every time uh, they're they're replaying a significant game, I've been posting uh, the Keeper's Notes on on those games with facts and nerd notes and trivia. uh, So you can check out those posts at KeeperNotes.com. And speaking of historic Woso videos... uh, course we've got nwsl replaying games on twitch each weekend so be sure you're following nwsl on twitter to get regular updates uh, 
Monday night, we've got uh, FIFA playing the historic quarterfinal from 2011. USA versus Brazil, uh, the game that Dan and I talked about in this episode. And if you have any old women's soccer games on VHS uh, and you would like them converted to digital, I am offering to do that for free. You send me the videotape, I will convert it to digital and send you back the digital file. And of course, I will also share the video on YouTube so other people can watch it. So if you have a game from back in the day, from WPS or NWSL or an old U.S. Women's National Team game that's not already up on YouTube, send me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com, um, and I can help you get that converted to digital. Also, another request for you guys, what recommendations would you like to hear uh, for this non-live soccer era that we're going through. Uh, just like Dan and I talked about uh, several key games to rewatch in this episode, do you want book recommendations, soccer movies, more games, other podcasts? Let me know. Send me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com. And, of course, the last thing in the back four, of course, is a plug for my Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac, uh, the 350-page comprehensive guide to the NWSL's first seven seasons. Complete player registry, coach registry, records, stats by season, team records, color photos, playoff match reports, lots more. There's nowhere else that you can get all of these things in one place. You can order it now at KeeperNotes.com either print, PDF, or both. And I'm working on a Dash Almanac now and plan to eventually do Almanacs for each team in the future. So check out KeeperNotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Big thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, and also... Icarus FC uh, is definitely the place to go if you're looking for a completely custom kit for your youth club or Sunday league squad or adult team or even a pro team. They can help you design a completely custom kit at an affordable price, IcarusFC.com. And of course, major thanks to Sean, my producer, and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible.